Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Well, sometime in the early first century, around 30 AD, there was a buzz and a stir in Israel. The people were saying that the prophets had returned to speak, or at least one prophet had returned to speak. Because there hadn't been any prophets for many years, at least not any true prophets, for hundreds of years. And this prophet who was speaking had a powerful message. He ranged in the wilderness, always staying close to the Jordan River. And hordes of people were taking trips out to see him and hear his messages. Some of them traveling a day or two or three or five just to go hear this prophet out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. And this was John the Baptist. With authoritative strength, John calls the people of Israel to put aside stale, ineffective, heartless, religious sleepwalking. And he tells them to repent of sin. And he tells them that their Judaism by birth will not be enough to save them from the wrath to come. He minces no words. He takes no prisoners. He constantly holds out the mercy of God to them. John certainly seems to practice what he preaches. He lives in the wilderness, apparently without his own home. His living is a subsistence living, eating the simplest of foods that he finds in the wilderness and wearing the simplest of clothes, not affected by fashion, not caught up with with feasting. He has no wife or children. He has the ability to draw crowds with the best of crowd drawers, but appears uninterested in compensation or popularity. We get the sense that John is completely single-minded in his life's purpose. The crowds are moved. They are changed by John's powerful message and example. They are baptized by the scores, by the hundreds, maybe by the thousands. Each baptism is a public proclamation, a commitment to turn from sin and to turn to God, trusting the mercy of God for forgiveness. John is highly esteemed by everyone that's coming, except those that he may be calling out as false leaders of religion. But then one day, another man walks into John's camp. He walks into view. You, you get the sense from looking at the text in the Gospels that he, he walks up and John sees them and he automatically begins saying the most unimaginable things about this man. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And then, as if this is not commendation enough, Jesus, this man that John is talking about, Jesus compels John to baptize him too. Now, Jesus didn't need to be baptized by John, but he did so for our sake, to show his complete obedience to the Father 
and to fulfill everything that, that he would be called to so that when he went to die on the cross, he would be a sufficient sacrifice for us. And so now when the Lord calls us to himself and we turn from our sin and we place our trust in him, we follow him in baptism. And so this is a good time to say, has the Lord saved you? Is he calling you? Have you been baptized yet? And if you haven't, in two weeks on Sunday morning, we're going to baptize again. And so if you need to be baptized, give us a call at the office. Send us an email. Come and talk to us. We want to talk to you about Jesus, your Savior, and we'd like to baptize you in his name. And when you're baptized, then you join God's people. And you join us at his table, the Lord's table, at communion, until he returns and we have a real feast in his presence forever. And so we'll be baptizing, so be aware. Now John baptizes Jesus. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, which by the way, these are interesting phrases that the gospel uses, which, which absolutely points to the idea that he was immersed. Okay, because he comes up, he's at, he's at the Jordan River, he comes up out of the water. When he comes up out of the water, supernatural things begin to happen. And one of those supernatural activities is that a voice is heard. It's a voice from above. It's a voice that's heard from above. It's a voice, the scripture says, from heaven. It's not a human voice, but it's a voice from heaven. And it says this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's amazing. As amazing as it is, there's even more, there's even something more amazing about this because the Jews present at that baptism that heard this voice from above, this voice from heaven, that wasn't a human voice that says, This, this man coming up out of the water, he is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. When they heard that, they would have immediately recognized the reference for these words. Hearing these words would take them back to their memorization efforts as children when their fathers quizzed them over and over. And they said, Come on, Dad, do we have to do this again? And he said, Yes. Do it again. And, and it would have brought them back, not only to their efforts to memorize as children, but to their efforts to help their children memorize. These Jewish people would have known these words. They would have understood what the reference was from. To their own efforts to understand the Scripture. And it would have reminded them of the regular reading of the Scriptures in the synagogue. So here's our question today. Here's a question for you. Do you recognize these words? When this voice from heaven says, this is my son. Do they ring a bell to us? Do we grasp to some useful degree their significance? Theologically and historically. I know some people say they hate history. But, but dear friends, God works in and through history. Our Savior came in history. He died at a moment in time and was raised at a moment in time. And witnesses said the tomb was empty and saw him alive. In other words, 
True history is true theology. They're connected. And I'm asking us this morning, when we hear the words, when we read these words, this is my beloved son, do we understand it, the significance, theologically and historically? Do we know the Scriptures well enough to benefit from this phrase? To take it deep into our soul, to be encouraged and stirred, and, and to rejoice in it, and to delight in it, and to look forward to the hope that it gives us. Do we love the Word of God enough, these Scriptures, so that as we grow in our understanding of it, the Word impacts us and changes us and grips us and transforms us, driving us ever deeper into the image and the person of the One who is our all in all into Jesus? Do we have that kind of grasp? Of the scriptures. Now, our series in Psalms this year has taken on a special emphasis, and we wanted to stir you, we want to stir everyone to love, to take up, to read, to delight in God's Word, to understand it even better. And so many of you are exemplary in this way, but all of us can grow. And so each of the pastors have taken Psalms that emphasize God's Word and have, have preached to us so that love for His Word would be cultivated in us. And it's been a wonderful time. And God has been growing a love, a lifelong love for His Word in us through it. And today we're going to close out this series by going back in some ways to the first message of this series. Because you see, Psalms 1 and 2 were placed at the beginning of this Psalter, this book of songs, for a reason. These, these weren't originally written you know, as a book. Someone didn't sit down and write chapter, chapter, chapter after the next, one after the other, and put a book together. No, they were these praises, these songs were written, and then at some point, God inspired an editor to bring them together and to line them up in the way that they're lined up. And they serve the ancient Israelites, and they serve the first century church, and they serve us to this day. God speaking through these words to stir up and inspire and encourage His people. And so Psalms 1 and 2 really belong together. They are an introduction to this book of praise. And Steve started our series five weeks ago from Psalm chapter 1, and today we're going to close out our series with Psalm chapter 2, the rest of the introduction to the book of Psalms. And this scripture on the screen, this one you see here, is actually God quoting Himself. So when God speaks at the baptism of Jesus, which is recorded by Matthew and the other gospel writers, he's actually referencing himself. He's referencing Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But think about this again. Just just pause and, and consider. It would have been amazing to hear God say this, hearing a voice from heaven. And then these actual words. God is calling this particular man, his son, his beloved son, who brings him delight. And just that alone is mind-blowing. But if we want to even more fully grasp this truth, to understand it in all its glory and what it means to enjoy and delight in it, to have it affect us and transform us and cause us to persevere and to stand, then we need to know God's Word. Because like those ancient Israelites, those first century Jewish people, upon hearing these words, it should have brought us back 
to this moment and to help us understand. That's really the way life is for the Christian. You see, the better we know God's Word, the more we can interpret life through it. Or the more, let me say it this way, the more connections we make in our lives to what God says here. The the more we have an opportunity to be in that valley of decision like we sang earlier. And we, we, we have that moment of decision. And we have to interpret this properly so that we make a God-glorifying decision. So that we follow Jesus and the path that He took in that valley of decision. We can find the answers here. And the better we know it, when that moment is upon us, the more likely we can relate it to what's here and follow our Lord and Savior. Because really, all of this is about Him. So in other words, if we want to enjoy the baptism of Jesus from the Gospels, we do well to delight in Psalm chapter 2 and other scriptures. Because it all points to Jesus, every bit of it. And so that's why I'm making this proposal this morning. It's a little bit topical. And I'm going to try to exposit this text. But because of our emphasis on God's Word, I want to draw out that implication from the text as best I can. And so I'm proposing this. If you would be happy, you must love the Word. If you would be happy, you must love the Word. And notice there that the is capitalized and word is capitalized. And so by the Word here, I don't mean the Scriptures, I mean Jesus. Because He is truly and ultimately the Word. Now when Steve preached from Psalm 1, he used a slightly different prop. If you would be happy, he he told us, you must love God's Word. And he was coming from Psalm 1 and and jumping off of that passage about uh, the righteous man delighting in the law or the scriptures of God. Psalm chapter 2 is messianic. It shows us that Jesus is at the center of all of it. In other words, the scriptures are the law that the righteous man rejoices and points to him. And so... If you would be happy, you must love the Word, the Scriptures, and you must especially love the Word, Jesus Christ. And when you love the Word, Jesus Christ, if you love the Word, Jesus Christ, you're going to love the Word, the Scriptures. They go together like that. So let's get started on our three points, okay? We're going to dive right into these three points. The first one, to be happy, and I've already been informed I should have a comma there, okay? To be happy, love the Word. I just want you to know that so I don't get comments later. Uh, which, by the way, you know, honestly, I should step aside. I joke because I really do appreciate the grammatical uh, and the vocabulary help that I receive from many of you. I really, truly do. It, it, it helps me grow. And I don't want to say things incorrectly here and have you just snicker about them and do that for the next, you know, two, three, four decades of preaching. All right, maybe not four decades, but you know what I'm saying. So, so by all means, help me. Okay, to be happy, we have to love the Word. And so now let's start diving into our text because I think it's going to lead us in this direction, loving Jesus. Loving Jesus. And we're going to see here in verses 1 to 6 that this text is talking about a king. And actually, it's going to talk about a line of kings. 
But it's going to talk about an ultimate king. And what it's saying here is that these kings, this line of kings, it's, these are more than your average kings. Maybe some of you are old enough to remember Yogi Bear from Jellystone National Park, which isn't a real place. But I believe it was Yogi Bear that used to say, I'm not your average bear. I think it's probably because he could speak English. But he also used to torment, you know, the park ranger and all the people that would come to visit and eat their food and whatever else. And so a while back I was saying to Grace, you know, I think I would have really enjoyed being a park ranger. And she said, well, you probably would have worked at Jellystone National Park. So that, that's probably right. That's probably right. All right, so now the idea of a king is fascinating to us because it's so foreign to our way of life. It seems so ancient to us, but truly there are kings in the world today, and it really wasn't even that long ago. If you trace your ancestral line, it wasn't that long ago that your ancestors would have been very familiar with the idea of a king and a queen and would have sat under monarchy. And it wasn't just an idea. They were affected. Okay? So let's dive into verses 1 to 6. Let me read that for you. And then we're going to return to our point here. Why do the nations rage? Verse, six, uh, verse 1. And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. And so, as I was saying, even our ancestors, not that long ago, not that many generations ago, would have been very affected by kings and queens, monarchies. And just think about, really, every area of life. Taxes, armies, servants, laws, the economy of those nations, wars, health services, infrastructure. Educational services, all of life would have been touched by the rule of the monarch. All caught up, all these areas of life, caught up in the power of one man or one woman to one degree or another. And when you look at the history of monarchies, you realize, as powerful as they were, they always had to watch their back, didn't they? I mean, many of these kings were were assassinated. Uh, Many of them had uh, other factors where they couldn't express their authority as much as they'd like, which was probably a good thing at times. But every once in a while you had in history a, a monarch who was so powerful he could really impose his will to the full extent upon his population. And to whatever degree a monarch was, was able, he exerted his authority over every area of life. And so like Yogi Bear was not an average bear, we see here in this text that there are, there are kings in the world, but the king that's being described in this text, or the kings that are being described in this text, they're not your average king. Not at all. Verse 2 tells us, that this is God's anointed one. And this word anointed has a counterpart in the, in the scripture. The, the Hebrew word being used here is essentially translated as Messiah in English. Which means savior or it means anointed one. The one that, that has been uh, set apart for this role. But this isn't just set apart by a council 
or by a dynastic family. This person has been set apart, this king has been set apart by God. This is God's anointed one. The, the, the counterpart in English in the New Testament, it, it comes from the Greek word Christos or Christ, which means anointed one. And so this is not an average king upon the earth. This is God's anointed one. And this is God's anointed one who is placed in God's place, the place that God sets up. His holy hill, Mount Zion. You may know this. Mount Zion was just a mountain where Jerusalem was built. So, so Zion is a hill in Jerusalem where the original city was built upon. And, and so this is what God has chosen. David chose Jerusalem as his capital city. But really it was God behind that choice. And so God's saying, this is my place and it's my man who's going to rule over my people. And it goes further. So when God speaks in verse 6, when he speaks in verse 6, he says, as for me, I have set my king on Mount Zion. This is not your average king. This king belongs to God. God owns this king. God is the father of this king. And metaphorically speaking, certainly, but also actually because God makes all of humanity. And God owns this king from the standpoint that this is God's particular people and this king will rule over God's particular people. This is the king that serves God directly. And this text here in Psalm 2, many scholars believe, was, they're not sure at what time it was written, but they believe it was used for the Davidic dynasty. That, that as each king came to power, perhaps this psalm was read to them in that moment, in that coronation ceremony, to say, this is, this is what's going on here right now. You're God's king. God owns you. You represent him. And he's going to be with you and bless you and help you. This was the psalm. It's a, it's a royal psalm. It's meant for the kings of Israel. That's what's going on here. Okay. Now, this king, who's not your average king, has nations fighting with him. Many peoples from the earth are, are, are arguing with him. It says, why do the nations rage? And the reason they do this is because he's not your average king. They're fighting with the king of Israel because they're fighting against the God of Israel. Right? This is the human condition. The human condition we know since, since the fall of man in the Garden of Eve into sin, the Garden of Eden, excuse me, into sin, humanity has rebelled against God. And so when God seeks to establish his rule, People don't like it. They don't like it on an individual level, and they don't like it on an international level either. And so they're fighting against God's king. I want you to think back to Psalm 1 that Steve preached on five weeks ago, that these, these psalms go together. You know, in Psalm 1, there is direction for the individual. That the, that the man who's not a scoffer or a mocker, 
who, who puts that aside and instead delights in God's law. That man is what? He's blessed. That individual is blessed by God. And how are they blessed? They're blessed by loving God's law. And the ones that love God's law, the individual that loves God's law or, or the scriptures, will thrive. And those that do not perish. Now after that beautiful and clear exposition of truth from Psalm 1, we come right to Psalm chapter 2, 1. You know, it, it almost feels like the psalmist has instructed a group of, of students on what they have to do to get an A. Okay, here's what you have to do. You have to follow these rules. You have to do these assignments. You do these things, and you'll, you'll excel. You'll thrive. You'll get an A. But as soon as he's done explaining it, they all start complaining and throwing things. They're mad. But it's far more extreme. Right? It's like, here's what you need to do to, to be blessed. You, you, you worship God. You bow before Him. You delight in, in what He reveals to us about Himself. And we learn to live in such a way that glorifies Him. Great, good, right? Okay, you got that? Yeah, okay, good. And as soon as we say that, the nations say, no way, we're not doing that. We'll do it our way. We're not doing it that way. We're not following that. That's kind of the scene that we have here. The nations are raging against God or God's elect because they rage against God. They refuse to bow. They refuse to reverence God's king. They will not meditate on God's law. They will make their own law. They will not give God a place. They want God's place. They say, let's burst the bonds. In other words, let's throw off the rule of God and his anointed one. And this is very interesting. Since they have the comfort of one another, you know, they take counsel, they agree. They're like, yeah, you know what? I agree. I don't want, I don't want God's king ruling. I don't want this guy ruling over me. And I don't want God ruling over. God's not going to tell me what to do. Get out of here with that religious nonsense. And they take comfort in one another. And they encourage one another in their rebellion against God. And there's this sense that, you know, God's king and God's people are surrounded by those raging against them. Kind of sounds like the Christian life, doesn't it? Well, let me ask, before we go too far in that direction, how does God engage this fight? Okay, so you have all this raging. His people are outnumbered. His king is out, outmatched in terms of just sheer numbers and technology. How does God engage this fight? Well, he doesn't. He's not worried. The outcome is not in doubt. The outcome's not in doubt, nor the ensuing battles are in doubt. Just think about this for a second. The scripture says God laughs. When the whole world points all of their hatred and all of their weapons against God's king, he's amused. He, he looks at he says, he, he smiles, he says, seriously? Really? I made you. And he laughs. He's amused at their petulance. He is derisive toward their arrogance. He feels no threat whatsoever from their coalition of rebellion. His plan goes forward. He has set his king up and he will in due time deal terribly with the rebellious. He will pour out his full wrath. This is not a fight. 
This is a sentence that will be executed. So this is God's king. He's a king. He's not average. Let me just take a further moment on this point. And we're going to be shorter in the other two. Take a moment at this point to connect, help us connect some dots. Because these raging nations represented by their rulers, which, by the way, is still happening on the earth today, governments rage against God's way. But so do individuals. It's not uncommon for people in their hearts to rage at God. I've done it. I confess to you. Have you done that? It's as if we think we have the right or the authority or the power, the independence to challenge God. People think they can call God on the carpet, call him to account. It's it's kind of that, that sense, that emotional idea that if I get angry enough, then I'm right. You know, if I'm outraged enough, then, then clearly I'm right. And you see this in the, in the news all the time. People use their outrage as a moral club to basically beat everybody else down with. And the human heart is tempted to do that. God, this isn't fair. You're not doing what's right. Not by me or not by these people that are suffering over here. I take up offense for them against you. I rage against you. And people, the stronger they make their argument, the more outraged they feel, the more they raged, the more they feel like they're in the right. Each human heart is tempted to break the bonds of God and to say, I will not be ruled by that. See, I'm right in my thinking And I'm so outraged about it, I know I'm right, and God, you're wrong, and I refuse to submit to someone who's so unjust and so unfair. Forget it. And then when others agree with them, they take counsel together, and they feel vindicated. Dear friends, this is a tragic and deadly attitude. It's a dead-end path that takes people to their deaths. And here's something for us all to take note of. Just because God hasn't answered yet doesn't mean that he won't. It just means that right now he's in the laughing stage. Right now he's smiling and amused and saying, really? Seriously? And you may think, when you think of that smile, that derisive amusement at the rage of humans against him, you may think, boy, how cruel is that? But you miss the crime of the rebellion. How fantastically offensive that is to the God who gives us life. And you miss the patience of God if you believe that. Because God is giving you opportunity. Praise God he hasn't answered yet. Because his answer will be terrible wrath. God is not moved by our raging. Would you like the ear of God? Would you like to speak to Him? God gives grace to the humble, and He opposes the proud. You will not receive an answer in your prideful raging other than God's derisive amusement and His wrath. If you wish to treat with God, you're going to have to bow the knee and worship Him. 
If this is you today, won't you repent? Turn from your rage. Turn from your accusations. And turn to Christ, who is the King of God. All right, we see that he's more than an average king. Well, let's just establish it now. We obviously see where this is going. This king is God. This king is God. So, verses 7 through 9, uh, let me read these verses. And as I read, you're going you're gonna to recognize that not only is this not an average king, so we're talking not just about the Davidic dynasty, but something more ultimate. And as we read, you're going to pick up hints and realize this can't be talking about a, simply a human king. There's something divine, there's something eternal going on in these words. And so look at verses 7 to 9 as I read them for you. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so you're going to see here that there's something more than just a human king. Although it is a human king, this is more than a human king. God says, very specifically, it's, it's a singular, this is my son. Now this is being applied to the Davidic kings, but the end of the Davidic kingdom had come. There were no more kings from the line of David. That, that human lineage, in a real sense, had failed. Not in the ultimate sense, but in a real sense had failed. And hundreds of years had gone by since they had a Davidic king. Now when God references, this will be my son, he's talking about a promise he made to David in 2 Samuel 7, where he says he's going to be like a father to David. But again, they had failed. And so there's something more going on here because we know that God's word never fails. And so we know there's more going on. There's also other hints about the divinity that's happening here because if we look at this closely, we're going to see these things can't be accomplished by a sinful person, a person born into sin like you and I. And then there's this phrase here uh, along those lines. It says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Remember earlier I was saying, you know, do these words basically, do they ring a bell when you hear about Jesus' baptism? Well, when I see this line, this line rings a huge bell in my mind. Because when I was a teenager and, and my wife, we were teenagers and we would go to youth camp. For, for several years, this, this was the mission song of camp. This was the commissioning song. This was the go out and, and win the world song. And, 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 and the lines went like this, and, and they said, um, Ask of me, and I will give the nations as an inheritance for you. And, and the way that we interpret that as young people, without knowing where it even came from, as we sang these words, it was, Oh, we should pray. And God will save the nations. And, and then we, we had another verse that is not in the Bible at all, but we sang it anyway. It said, it was kind of the response. It was, here am I. Send me to the nations. 
as an ambassador for you. And so that is drilled into my mind. And by the way, I think the impulses are, there's a lot that are right about these impulses. But as I study the context of the verse, I'm not so sure about the song anymore. This is so ingrained in, in Grace and I that, that I'm laying in bed studying for the message and, and, uh, and, and she's laying there reading next to me and, and I, I come to this verse, I'm considering it, and I, I just start to sing in my most dramatic tones this song, you know, ask of me and I will give the nations. And, and, and as I get to the end of that verse, I, I look over at her and I'm just waiting for, you know, you know, the com- will you cut that out or you're ridiculous or some silly comment. I mean, the whole point of it was to kind of get under her skin a little bit. But instead of that, she starts to sing the response. Here am I, send me to the nations. So I thought maybe, maybe someday we can do the duet for you all, if you'd like that. You know. and maybe 10 or 20 years from now. Not, not anytime soon, but anyway. We, we could potentially do that for you. Now, the, the challenge with that is that, of course, as you look at this, you realize that, that God's talking about judgment on the nations that oppose His Son. And, and the very next verse kind of makes it hard. The very next verse, by the way, is not included in the song. Probably for some obvious reasons. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So it kind of ruins missionary zeal in, from that standpoint. And I do think that can be a problem for us, you know, taking scriptures out of context and applying them unhelpfully. But I do want to say very quickly, I don't think it's all wrong, uh, although that would take another sermon to draw out the implications of that. I'm just simply saying for now that we want to understand the context because what God is saying here is that Jesus, he's saying, he's saying to the Davidic kings, if you'll pray to me, If you'll acknowledge me, I'll give you the world. But again, that was that never happened. They didn't get the world. They they enlarged their area, but they never got the whole world. And in fact, when you when you consider how often the Davidic kings sinned and how they fell into sin, you realize uh, there was never a shot of that happening because of their sinful nature. So is this a false promise from God, a, a, a premise that could never be reached, a promise that God knew, well, you know, I can, I can make as big a promise as I want, they'll never reach that goal. I'm not going to have to pay up on this one. That's not what God does. God is promising a king who will ask him, and he will give the nations to. And that is what has happened in Jesus Christ. This whole world belongs to him. Now, don't let this transitory period, this temporal period, where, where the devil is still loosed and working his evil works in the hearts of men and of governments and nations, and the nations still appear to just rage against God. Do not be fooled. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Do not be fooled. And so this is speaking of God the Son, the King of the universe. And this promise meant that God would extend the reign of Jesus throughout the whole earth and he would silence and stop all of the enemies of God, all of the enemies of his Son. That's that, that whole idea of that other psalm that speaks and says, and says, sit here at my 
at my side, till I make your enemies a footstool, till you put your feet on top of them altogether. Jesus will have his reign extended. He has already defeated death and the devil. It's just a matter of time to where that's entirely seen on this earth. Now here's where I want to take a more of a topical turn and to to connect this to Jesus being the Word. Remember I said, if you want to be happy, you have to love the Word, meaning Jesus Christ. Jesus is called, and here he's being likened to a king, and he really is a king. But in other parts of Scripture, and especially in John 1, he's called the Word. The Word. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Word? That's an interesting descriptor. Well, what is a Word? Well, a Word is something that that brings communication. The, the, The better that Word is, the clearer that Word is, the better understood it is. The more it represents the idea that is that is that is the goal of the communication. And many times we mess this up. We we don't communicate as well as we would like to. Jesus doesn't have a problem with that. He is the embodiment of the word. He communicates precisely what he means to communicate. And so Jesus being the word means that he is the exact and complete representation of God. Right? He tells Philip, he says, in in, in the Gospel of John, he says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so, so much of the Scripture, have you ever considered how glorious it is? We have four Gospels, true stories from four different perspectives of Jesus' ministry and his death and resurrection. That is material that helps us understand and see Jesus, who is God. And so if we love the Word, we're showing love to the Word who reveals God to us because He is God. He is the exact and complete representation of God. He he communicates God perfectly. Not only is He the exact and complete representation of God, He is the embodiment of all truth. Anything that is true finds its complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Word. And He is in and of Himself the continual proclamation of truth. Jesus is the Word. And so, if you were to be happy in life, we have to love this King. If we're to be happy... We must love the Word, Jesus Christ. All right, let me give you the third point. Those who love this King are happy. And let me reread for you verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I'm calling us to love this king. To love this one who is the word. If we love this king, we will be happy. And I'm calling us to love him. Well, I want to point something out. There, There is a willful component of love. 
And it's more connected to who we are holistically, including our emotions, that we may at first realize. Um, and, and I want to point this out because I, I think sometimes we, we just think of love, I mean, it just comes naturally to think of love as an, as an expression or an extension of enthusiasm. But I want to just try to illustrate how that's not really the case. So, a lot of times we approach love, this extension of enthusiasm, it's the idea that, that we just inherently like something. We just, the moment we were born, we just enjoyed something. We loved it. And maybe there's a person that catches our eye, and we, we, we just, for some reason, we just love that person. It's a feeling, and it's, a, and, and it's true. I think those are, are real components of love. I'm not diminishing them. I'm just saying that's not the whole of it. And, and we can kind of be swept off our feet. And sometimes we, we, we describe these strong feelings of, of affection as, as being swept off our feet by another person or even by a thing. It's kind of this idea of an automatic response, a spontaneous feeling that bursts out of us. Well, let me try to illustrate what I'm getting to with this. I never understood why my grandfather would put water in his soda. When we would have soda, when I was a child, that was a huge treat at the dinner table to have soda. I loved it. I loved that, that sweet, sugary water, that bubbly, sugarly, sugary water. And it just astounded me that he would put half a glass of soda and then he would put water in there as well. I said, why would you do that? Well, that ruins it. Like, it doesn't taste good anymore after you do that. And, and if you'd asked me at the time, I would have told you I loved soda. It was just in me. I just loved it. I loved the way it tasted, right? It came very naturally. It was an automatic feeling and spontaneous. I, I think I can say I had more than, than a neutral relationship with soda. <laughs> I loved it. You know what? I barely like soda anymore. <laughs> Once in a while, I like a few sips, but almost never a whole glass. Do you know why? It's too sweet. And I totally get my grandfather now. (laughs) Amen. Yeah, yeah, we're getting... Yeah, amen, yeah. So be it, truly. What happened? What happened to my love for soda? Well, I realized it wasn't as good it positioned itself to look better than it really was. And my affections went for that thing that it seemed to be. But you know what? If you drink too much soda, you won't have any more teeth. And you'll have other problems as well. And so, I changed my relationship with it. And as I changed my relationship with soda, I learned that I actually love water more than I ever loved soda. All right, silliness, right? But what I'm getting at is that there's a willful aspect or component of love. That as we see what's right and good, wisdom guides us. And we begin to be trained by what's right and good. And our affections can follow that. Our affections, believe it or not, your affections for the things that are not good can change and become pointed toward and and become directed at and land upon what's right and good. 
And the more you engage what's right and good, the more you see how it benefits you, the more you love what it's doing for you. It happens that way. And so we see that that there is a love that comes through wisdom. And wisdom here says, when we look at these verses 10 through 12, wisdom here says, take the warning. There is a warning. You know, too often we're offended by warnings. They feel like critique. Because, hey, you're going that way. And, and, and the warning says, the warning is the, the, implicit in the warning. The warning says, if you keep going that way, something bad is going to happen to you. And so we, we hear that and we say, wait a, wait a second. You're saying that I'm wrong for going the way that I'm going. I like the way I'm going. But wisdom says, take the warning. If it's a true warning, right? then the person that's sharing with us, what they're saying to us is less about personal critique and more about love for our good. And so it says, take the warning. And the warning here says, it says, kings, therefore, because of these things, because of this king, who is God's son, be wise, be warned, turn from your way. So dear friend, take the warning. Maybe you are a strong believer and, and you, you know that the wrath of God is not for you. It's gone. It's been paid for by Jesus. You don't face that. But maybe you're dabbling or maybe you're really caught up in sin. That happens to us. We get tripped up. We get caught. If that's where you're at, take the warning. Even though God's not going to pour out his wrath on you, there's joy and delight In loving the word. In bowing to this king. And so take the warning and turn. If you haven't trusted Jesus, please, by all means, I beg of you, take the warning. I'm not calling you the worst sinner on the face of the earth. I'm saying we're all in need of saving. You as well. Take the warning before it's too late. And wisdom says, take the warning. Warning says, serve the Lord. Verse 11, serve the Lord with, with fear. That idea of fear in the Old Testament. It, there is a, a, an aspect where it's, where it's frightening. But what that really comes from is reverence. That I am now in the presence of someone so far above me in, in their personhood. In who they are in value and worth. That I tremble in their presence. But not only do I serve with reverential and worshipful awe, but I rejoice with trembling because I recognize in His presence that, that who am I to be able to stand here and serve as a, as a door opener in the house of God? Why should I have that opportunity? I should be struck dead. But instead, He calls me into His conference. He brings me into His throne room. And he says, come and serve me. And it's my honor to do so. And so, wisdom says, rejoice. Rejoice in the servants of the God, the King over all, the Word. And wisdom says, kiss the Son. Show your affection for Him. Move toward Him. Where it says here that His wrath is quickly kindled. Maybe a better sense would be to say that when His wrath comes, it comes quickly. In other words, God is very patient, He's very gracious, very slow to, to punish. He's, he's, he's put up with us, hasn't He? And He provided Christ Jesus. 
But when wrath does come, it's going to come like a thunderclap. Before you, you even recognize that it, it, it might happen, it has already passed. When his wrath comes, it will come without hesitation, with no slowdown. There won't be any timeouts. There won't be any, hey, just give me another minute. I'll, I'll get it right. Hold on. When his wrath comes, it comes quickly. And so, in wisdom, step toward the Son. Step toward the Word. Love the Word. Align with Him. The Scriptures here says, the last line of Psalm chapter 2 says, Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Think about that. Blessed. Blessed is this amazing and wonderful word. Sometimes it's translated as happy. Happy is a good translation of that word, but, but it's more than that. It's, it's you're happy because God himself shows you favor. So there's something from beyond you, God, the something that matters worse, the someone that matters. Our all in all, he shines on us and he, he makes us happy because he favors us. In fact, that's the blessing. That's the heart of the blessing, is to know that he favors us. It's not even in the ways that he favors us. It's in the truth that he favors us. Blessed are those. Blessed are those. Happy are those who align with Jesus Christ, the Son, the Word, who take refuge in him. So, dear friends, I'm going to ask Doug to come and just lead us in a closing song. If you would be happy... You must love the Word. Yeah, this passage, I think, straightforward expositionally is there to teach us that we've got a king and we should bow to him and we should take hope and heart in the reality of our king above all kings. We could do a lot of talking about the nations of this world and how Jesus will subdue them all and has subdued them all and will subdue them all. But for this morning and our theme and, and Psalms for Life, I want to go in this direction. That you would love... The ultimate personification and communication of God to us, Jesus Christ. And that in loving him, you would take up the word that's about him. Not just in the New Testament, not just in the Gospels, not just in in some of the New Testament passages. But from beginning to end of this book as shown again here in Psalm chapter 2, which I believe is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, this whole book is about Jesus Christ, the Word. teaches us about Him, who teaches us about God. So if you'd be happy, you must love the Word. And let me say this. The psalms move from lamentation to praise. So if you're to study the Psalms, what you'll find is that there are more lamenting Psalms than there are praise Psalms. It's kind of a fascinating idea. And I think what it gets to is the reality of our broken world. This is why so many thousands and hundreds of millions of believers have taken so much comfort from the Psalms over the years. Because no punches are pulled here. God knows our challenges and our difficulties. He knows that we weep, that we lament. But we're not left there, are we? 
And so if you study the Psalms, what you'll find is that there's, there's a concentration of, of Psalms of lament at the beginning. And there's a concentration of songs that praise at the end. You know what else you'll find? In almost every case, with just a couple of exceptions, in almost every case where you have a psalm of lament, even that psalm of lament ends with praise. You see, the psalms are moving from lament to praise. And so I want to hearten those of us here today who may be weeping, who may be lamenting, and saying all this message, this, this idea of loving the Word and, and taking up the Scriptures so that you know Him better and love Him and delight in Him. Because He's all through here. This idea, it's not separate from who you are. The Psalms aren't speaking another language. They're speaking your language. They're speaking to you. God is saying through them, I know you weep, but you will not always weep. And in that truth that you will not always weep, take heart and rejoice and delight in Jesus Christ. You know who else went from lament to praise? Our Savior, of course. He walked this earth. It was sorrowful. It was hard. He almost finished his days with the crucifixion. But he didn't finish there. He finished with a resurrection and an ascension. And now sitting in the throne room of God waiting for the final trumpet to sound when all will be resolved. And then it will be only and always praise all the time. Dear friends, when you take up the word so that you can be happy in the word, you know what you're doing? You're coming to the sun and you're kissing the sun. You're kissing the sun. And know how God delights and wants to bless those that kiss the sun. Let's all stand together and sing in closing. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.